Well, since the kids have been sent away, and I'm going to assume the first through fifth graders who stayed here are a little bit more of the mature first through fifth graders, we can talk about anything. So let's talk about love. And in particular, I'd like to draw our attention to the fact that love has what I'm going to call two kinds of terror. There are two terrors to love. You might choose a different word, but you'll get the idea. The first terror of love is that initial flush of the beginning. Maybe it's an infatuation. Maybe it's something at first sight. It's the kind of thing you get so excited about, but you're worried and you're self-conscious. What will he think of me? What will she think of me? I don't want to make a fool of myself. Do I look right? Will I say the right thing? Always a little bit unsure. And that can go on for a while. So I call it terror. Maybe you call it something else. It's been a while for me, so give me a little credit. <laughs> what? What is it? What is it, you know? It's been three minutes since that last text and they still haven't answered. What's going on? And that's there at the beginning. But there's another kind of terror, and this is the kind that maybe we don't talk about so much. It's after the love has grown. So let's assume the infatuation and the, and the puppy love has gone away, and there's something real there. There's something there that is enduring. Well, there comes a point, if that's really going to mature to its deepest level, where we have to realize that this love can't in any way, shape, or form be hinged to my ego. It can't be grounded simply in what I want it to be. We use language, you know, phrases like, uh, unless someone is free, you never really have them. And, but a lot of times that's just kind of nervous talk when we're a little unsure about the strength of the relationship. But at some point, at its deepest level, and let's be brutally honest, sometimes our loves never get to this point. Sometimes it takes years and years or even decades but a kind of radical detachment. And that can sound terrifying, I say, because there's always going to be a little voice that says, if you really detach your ego that much from love, then do you have anything left? Is there really anything there? What if, what if the other person, what if they just completely drift away? Don't we need something that holds us to the other? And the answer, of course, is yes, but can we get to that point by having first walked through that radical point of saying, I'm not holding on to you at all. I'm not simply holding on to what I desperately hope will be there. It looks in its most extreme form at the infatuation stage, but even when we get past that, there can still be a non-trivial part of us that says, but I want it to be this, and I want them to be that for me, and I want them to feel this way for me. And to get even beyond that. And just before we cross that threshold, I say there can be a kind of terror in our hearts. What if? The worry. Do I really have to go to that point? Mentioning this because you see both of those in our readings today. It's one thing to say, wow, this is amazing. I see where this is going and I want it. And then there can be that fear of, well, what if I don't have it or what if I'm not worthy? And you see that at the transfiguration. I mean, Peter, James, and John, they're given this vision of everything that could be. 
In another version of this, another one of the Synoptic Gospels, we're told that Peter is almost out of his mind. He doesn't exactly know what to say. He's so kind of nervous. And... But what he's being shown is the glory that he hasn't seen before. And if you look it up, you'll see that this scene comes just after Jesus has told them that he's going to suffer and die, and Peter struggles with that. That's the whole get-behind-me-Satan scene. And it's almost as if having worked through all of that and forcing Peter to let go of some of those inaccurate perceptions, Jesus says, now let me show you. Let me show you what can be. And there's that almost unspeakable nervousness. Gosh, is that it? Is that what we could have? Jesus says, now just let it go for the moment. But let's go to the first reading with Abraham. When I talk about a sort of radical detachment, in some ways, I'm even a bigger fan of Abraham than I am of Peter at the Transfiguration. Because Abraham is shown nothing. He's not shown anything of what he's going, <clears throat> excuse me, of what he's going to become. <clears throat> he's not shown the promised land. He's not shown, <clears throat> he's not shown these thousands and thousands of people who will be his offspring. God mentions that to him but he shows him no vision, and he doesn't even tell him where they're going. He says, go to a land that I will show you. What does Abraham have to see? What does he have to hold on to? <clears throat> it's what he's already got. He has to look at a large part of his family. He has to look at his land. He has to look at his riches and blessings. And he has to somehow walk through the threshold that says, these will not hold me back. And maybe it's easy for us to say, well, of course, God is calling him and he's going to be the founder of all salvation history and that relationship with God. But he's shown none of that. He's not told that he's chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. All he knows is that he's being asked to walk away. This isn't even his God, right? He's not from Israel. He's never met this God before. And for me, at least, that's facing the terror which says, if I'm going to make this an act of love, it's only going to be love at its deepest sense if I can say, even this good stuff that I have, it's not bad. There's nothing inherently evil about it. But even this, I have to let go of. Because only then is my heart truly free in the most extreme and radical sense. Only then can I be as receptive as I possibly can be as a human being. And I don't know about you, but that I can find incredibly frightening at times. So, as we move through Lent, sometimes it's easy to jump ahead, right? Even if we're in RCIA, we know Easter's coming. That's a pretty sure bet. We know the glory that's going to be there. We know all the promise and joy that's being offered and yet somehow stubbornly with these readings today and in this whole Lenten season, we're asked not to have that nervous joy, when is Easter going to be here? But rather to face that different kind of nervousness, that different kind of fear. If I ever want to open my heart to that extraordinary, unconditioned love that God wants to give me, can I face the fear if it's there? And I don't think we'd be human if we didn't have a little of it. Can I face the fear which says, now look at all you have and allow yourself to be free? 
For most of us, it doesn't mean walking away like Abraham did, but it does mean even if I'm going to stand beside it, it doesn't have a claim. It doesn't have a claim on my emotions. It doesn't have a claim on my fear or my worry. My hopes, my aspirations, they're not tied to this. And that's a huge, huge thing to ask. And that's where grace matters. That's why the sacraments matter. And so just as a little spiritual exercise, perhaps, in the second week of Lent, to do an inventory. Where are my butterfly, infatuation kind of fears? What am I hopeful will be? What am I a little bit embarrassed about and I want to make myself look better? And then where are my other kinds of fears? Where I am terribly, terribly afraid of losing what I have. And just to lay both of those before the altar and to ask for the grace to be free. Because that's what this Lenten journey is all about. From Peter to Abraham and back again.